Hello, everybody. This is Carolyn Zachka. And this is Lisa Villar. And this is our second episode of the Let It Brain podcast. And this time we had a really special guest. That's right. We were at the weekly electric fish meeting in Goethe, Germany at the end of September, and we got the chance to interview an expert in the field of genetics and evolution of weekly electric fish. And this is something that's really close to our heart because... Lisa and I, we both work with weekly electric fish as well. And this is somebody we knew about for many years and finally got to put a face to the name. Yeah. So first of all, it was a great honor to talk to Dr. Harold Saken. It really was. And the second cool thing was, on the one side, we talked about neuroscience a lot, of course. <laughs> but on the other hand, since he's a geneticist, we also talked a lot about genetics, which is not included in our everyday work. So we got to learn a lot this time. That's right, and gain some really new perspectives. Yeah. And we hope you do as well. Now, like before, we're going to start by introducing some of the concepts in the interview that you might not have heard of before. And I think Lisa had found a really great definition on what computational neuroscience is. Yes, so my definition is from the Werner Reichert Center of Typing, and this is a real big thing here. So we call it SIN for the most part. In their definition, they state that computational neuroscience is made up three facets. And the first one is that computational neuroscientists use mathematics as a tool. So, for example, they would use a mathematical model to better understand the empirical data they gathered. The second facet, in my opinion, is somehow cute, because <laughs> as a neuroscientist, it's quite obvious to you. The second facet is that we actually have to use a computer to analyze the brain. Which is like, who doesn't use a computer for absolutely everything nowadays, right? Yeah, right. right. Like, let's sit down and use an oscillogram and look <laughs> how the neuron is spiking. That would be really funny, but not so practical. <laughs> so <laughs> or pen and paper. <laughs> <laughs> and <Shoot. laughs> The third facet about computational neuroscience is actually about the computations the brain has to do by itself. And we all might notice that the whole time your brain has to translate your sensory inputs, which hit you from the outside world all the time, and it has to translate it in a language that the brain itself understands. For example, spiking behavior of neurons. Mm -hmm. And with spiking for those that are unaware, we just simply mean the action potentials and the pattern in which they occur in exactly. a sequence. Okay, so to switch gears completely, another term that you will encounter in our interview is the Cambrian explosion. This happened during the Cambrian period in Earth's history. That was about 540 million years ago. And that's when most major animal phyla appeared in the fossil record. So it lasted for about 13 to 25 million years. And it resulted in the divergence of most modern metazoan phyla, so most modern multicellular animals. And that was accompanied by this massive diversification of other organisms. And something we recommend you do is just go on Google and Google strangest animals from the Cambrian period, because Lisa and I did this earlier. Yeah. And... The results are hilarious. Yes, we had a lot of fun. We did. They just look like messed up shrimp with body parts where there shouldn't be body parts. <laughs> yes. I don't know how else to describe it, but definitely Google it. There's these really weird, cool animals that happened during the Cambrian period. And Caroline also had this nice expression of the Cambrian period. How did you say it? Right. For me, it's like the... It's like when Earth went through puberty for me, or biology <laughs> went through puberty, because it's like trying out all these new things, go through all these phases, and, and that to me is the Cambrian period. It's just Earth going through puberty and trying out all these different things. <laughs> if you look at the pictures, you will get that. Yeah, definitely Google it. So the next thing, which is quite important to us, is to give you a short weekly electric fish intro. But we won't go into that too much either, right? Because, hint, there might be more episodes on that. <laughs> <laughs> For you right now, it's important to know there were two lineages. On the one hand, there are the African Mormyrids, 
And on the other hand, there are the South American chimney toforms mm-hmm. and the both lineages developed an active electric sense independently. And what I mean by that is they developed so-called electric organs, which are built up of so-called electrocytes. These are tiny cells like batteries. And now in these two lineages, we have two different types of weekly electric fish. On the one hand, we have the pulse type weekly electric fish, who discharge their electric organ in a pulse-type manner. So it's like those action potentials of neurons. They just emit one of those pulses. And that's also a reason why they are great for studying ion channels. And then on the other hand, we have the wave-type weakly electric fish, which discharge their electric organ in a continuous sinusoidal manner. And by discharging these electric organs, and they build up a, an electric field around their body. So it's quite similar to the echolocation of the bats, right? You produce a sound or a signal and use this signal to sense your environment. Right. And oh, I'm so fascinated by that. Turning into a fangirl again, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and... It's called active because they have to build up the sense. Right, so they have to produce the signal themselves rather than just passively reading something in their environment. They are the ones producing the signal that is read back in over the electroreceptors. From what I understand, the sensors that read this input back, there's the active ones and the passive ones. Yes, so... Of course, if you emit such a signal, you should also have something that can sense the signal. And this is where the so-called electroreceptors come in, which are spread through the body surface of the weakly electric fish. And there are also, again, two types. The active electroreceptors, which are part of the tuberous system. They encode the own discharges of the fish. So they have a real high frequency, which they can still encode. And then there's the much older system, which is called the ampullary system. And there are ampullary electroreceptors, but they are also found in sharks and rays. So it's not part of this weekly electric fish genera only, but they also have it. Right. So I can have the passive system without having an electric organ, yeah. and I can detect maybe prey in my environment using that, but I don't myself emit a field in the water with which to locate objects or communicate with other fish. Exactly. And Caroline said that you can detect prey by that, because that's also really cool. What this passive electric sense does is it measures little electric fields in the water, which can be caused, for example, by muscle contractions of prey. Right. But the active one is then more to locate objects in the water that have a different conductivity than the water surrounding it. Yes. Or when you have two fish next to each other and they want to talk to each other, then they can do that too. Exactly. The weekly electric fish, it's really a champion in many ways, and there's many reasons why we like researching it. Uh, One of the reasons in the interview that comes up is that some of these fish have really high frequencies with which they create this electric organ discharge, and that makes them really awesome candidates for studying ion channels. And there's many, many other reasons why they are niche but champions in a certain field. And that puts them in contrast to model organisms, which are these organisms that are super well studied, but more general for many different applications of research, right? Yeah. And something funny happened when we wanted to look into this. That's right. Carolyn searched the paper. And what happened? Right. For you by searching that paper. I was searching for a paper that I had read for a class in which we had a debate about model organisms versus comparative uh, organisms. Yeah. And I just had this paper in my head because I remember it was so inspiring and I was so fascinated by it and I wanted it for our intro. And then I found it and I realized the person who had written that paper is our guest on today's program. <laughs> 
Dr. Harold Zakin. So that was a really cool moment because that paper really inspired me to go into weekly electric fish. So what are model organisms then exactly? Right. So you probably know some of them, right? You have Drosophila, the fly, Danuririo, which is the zebrafish, the mouse, the rat, C. elegans, the nematode, or E. coli and Saccharomyces in microbiology, or Arabidopsis yep. for plant people. And these are species that are very well researched. Uh, the genome is sequenced. There's lots of available info. They're easy to breed, large number of offsprings, short lifespans. So they're readily available. They're easily maintained and easy to breed in large numbers. And that obviously makes them really awesome for research in terms of just how many resources we have. If we already have the whole genome sequenced, it's easier to study species, right? But biology, and this is what's written in the paper, has this really rich history of using many, many, many different types of organisms. But over time, that has narrowed down. And it's a bit of a vicious cycle because if you study one animal, you gain more information on that animal. And then when you're deciding on what animal to study, you're going to choose the one where there's more information available. Mm -hmm. And then it just keeps building up, building up until you end up with these model organisms. But there's some drawbacks to that, right? First of all, 75% of our research efforts are directed to the rat, mouse, and human brain, and that is only 0.0001% of the nervous systems on the planet. So, but every species has something to offer to our understanding, right? And how much can you extrapolate from these few species to yeah. every single nervous system? Maybe we're missing some important things, right? And, I mean, there have been so many inventions that came from non-model organisms, right? You have GFP, green fluorescent protein, which was found in jellyfish, conotoxins in cone snails, nerve growth factor in chicks, GABA was found in crabs, TAC polymerase from the bacteria Thermophilus aquaticus. There's just so many examples of this. Yeah. And then the other question is, is it really the best idea to use, for example a mouse as a model organism for visual neuroscience because mice are nocturnal, right? And they rely far more on tactile and olfactory cues than vision for orientation. And they have a vision that would basically, if they were human, qualify them as legally blind. Well, <laughs> Right. So you would never do a human study and allow legally, I mean, you would never take legally blind people and then try to extrapolate that to... Studies focusing on vision. Yes. Yeah. So there's something to be said about that. But what I really recommend you do is just read this paper. It's very clear and very well written and can give you a lot of insights about why it's important to not just look at model organisms. And I want to stress this, that this doesn't mean we should not use model organisms. They obviously have vast benefits simply because it's so much more feasible to do. Yeah, I totally agree. And I really like the idea of comparative organisms complementing the yes. research which is done with model organisms. Because in my opinion, we need both. Also because a lot of the questions we try to answer nowadays are so complex that it might be quite good to look at the problems from different angles. Exactly, because otherwise we can run the risk of assuming the way it works in one species is the way it works in all species. And also, that's maybe because I'm biased and you as well in this work group, but for me as a scientist, I always get the feeling, well, go out into the field, look how the animal lives there and don't forget that and take this home with you and right. put it into your research. Right. Because everything which is done in a lab is great, but also on this abstract level. It's artificial to a certain degree, right? There tends to be inbreeding that can happen ah. and that right. And that leads to a lot a lot of homozygosity and loss of genetic diversity. And that influences course, yeah. the phenotypic, the molecular, the physiological, the anatomical traits. So these laboratory species have different behaviors and 
are reared in conditions also that are different than the wild species. So what you find in these laboratory species might not be even applicable to the wild species. For me, I often get the expression that as a scientist, you have this trade-off. So do I do things which can be done, which I can afford time-wise, money-wise, etc.? Mm-hmm. Or do I want to portray the whole reality, which is much more complex, mm-hmm. but which is always the final goal, right? Eventually it should be. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really like this paper and the points you made about it, that model organisms are great, but don't forget the comparative organisms and try to figure out mm-hmm. how to resolve problems that arise by... Comparing the two. Yeah. Absolutely. So that brings us to our guest on this episode, Dr. Harold Zakin, which we already introduced a little bit, but just to give you a little more insight on what he does. Actually, he researches the function, regulation, and evolution of voltage-dependent ion channels. That's why we also mentioned to you what pulse-type weakly electric fish are. Right. And uh, the main focus of his study has been on the regulation of sodium and potassium channels, hormones such as testosterone or estrogen, but also by phosphorylation. And his lab has a major emphasis on cloning these ion channel genes and understanding their transcriptional regulations. Mm -hmm. So we hope that you will enjoy this interview as much as we did. And... We are looking forward to hear you in episode three and getting your feedback. Thanks for listening in. Bye. Hello, everybody. Today we have a very special guest on our show, all the way from the University of Texas at Austin. We're very glad to introduce to you today, Dr. Harold Zakin. Very nice to have you here. Uh, we should mention we are at the eFish meeting here in Goethe, Germany this weekend. Yesterday we heard Dr. Zaken give a great talk on genetics of ion channels, and that is what we hope to ask him a little bit about today. So just to jump right in, why are comparative phylogenetic methods important? Why not stick with the model organisms? Well, there are many, many things you can do with model organisms. They have a lot of strengths and many people studying them. So there's good reason that there are model organisms. But other species have advantages that are different from the model organisms. In the case of electric fish, they communicate with electricity and that is the simplest form of communication possible. They make electric signals from ion channels. They receive electric signals with ion channels. And so anyone who's interested in the evolution of ion channels or the biophysical function of ion channels can learn a lot. Just to give you a comparison, if we consider acoustic communication, as we are now, we need neuronal activity in our motor neurons to go to muscles that are in our larynx, and they have to contract a certain amount and cause tension on structural elements, and then the acoustic properties of the mouth filter the sound. So it's a very complicated process to go from neural activity to the output. And when we hear a sound, that sound is filtered by our ears and our ear canal, and it acts on the cochlea through a series of very complicated mechanical processes. So speech and hearing is, of course, important to humans, but it's very complicated in terms of understanding all the stages of signal production and signal processing. Whereas with electric signals, you start with electricity, 
which, as I like to say, is the language of the nervous system. So the signals are already in the language or the currency of the nervous system. So understanding how signals are made and received, especially across species, becomes a much easier problem. That's a great point. Now, do you feel that what we can learn from this more simple communication way it can be transferable to the more complex uh, ones like humans? Well, if we think about ion channels, those are proteins in the membrane of cells that open and close as a function of mainly the voltage across the cell membrane. And they open and close at different rates and they let different ions into or out of cells. Ion channels are so ancient that voltage-dependent channels evolved approximately three to two and a half to three billion years ago, first mm -hmm. in bacteria. Mm -hmm. All organisms have some voltage-gated channels. Uh, now, of course, there's been a lot of evolutionary change and different channels have evolved in different groups. But some of the biophysical properties of channels are very, very conserved. So one of the things we can do is we can ask about what are the biophysical limits of ion channels. To give you an example, most action potentials, that is nerve impulses that we make, last about a millisecond. And we know that ion channels, like sodium channels, open and let sodium ions into the cell. They close. And then a second kind of channel, called potassium channels, open. That lets potassium out of the cells. And the inflow of positively charged ions, followed by the outflow, the exit of positively charged ions, makes a very brief millisecond event where the inside of the cell goes positive and then negative again. And as I said, that takes about a millisecond. So we might want to know something about how these channels work. We recently have been studying a potassium channel that's found in the African electric fish. And what's interesting about these fish is they make pulses from their electric organ that are only hundreds of microseconds. They're much shorter than an action potential is in the vertebrate, right. or I, I should say in the mammalian nervous system. So one thing we can do is we know natural selection has worked on the electric output of the fish to shape it, to make some make very short pulses, others to make very long pulses. So we can ask, natural selection has done the job of making channels do unusual, weird things. Mm -hmm. Can we look at these channels in electric fish and find clues as to how our channels work? It's, it's using the basic strategy of finding animals that are extreme in mm. some way. Animals that are champions, as yeah. people say. A champion at doing something that illustrates it and illuminates the processes so well that you can now go back and say, ah, I see in organisms like us, where maybe this is not so specialized, how these processes work. And I guess that's the neuroethology ethos, right? What is it called again? The principle we talked about? Crohn's principle. Crohn's yeah. principle. Yeah, yeah exactly. Last, last time we were talking about bats mm -hmm. and about echolocation and how much about the auditory system in humans is known because of studies in barn owls. Yes. So there again is such a champion, as you called it. Yes. <laughs> champion is a nice word. Yeah. I like that. Now to go in a little on your... Um, what you mentioned with the channels, in your review, Evolution of Animal Neural Systems, you said that the key change which allowed for the development of a complex neural code was sodium channels, and yet there are 10 times as many potassium channels 
in typically in animal genomes. Yes. Like you said that. So for me, intuitively, if sodium channels are more important, then why are there more potassium channels? Well, if we consider the evolution of the nervous system, yes. Okay. What we're talking about is originally having single-celled organisms in probably the ocean. Mm-hmm. And they have had and still have two different kinds of channels primarily. Calcium channels that let calcium into the cell and potassium channels that let potassium out of the cell. Mm-hmm. Many single-celled organisms do a lot with these two channels. So calcium can come into the cell and because calcium has evolved to be a a, a, um, molecule that does work inside a cell. So let me clarify that. Calcium comes in and it binds to different proteins. And depending on what proteins are in the cell, it may activate different processes. So if we think about a single-celled paramecium, It's a little cell, and it swims with cilia. Calcium is necessary for triggering the movement of the cilia. So just having calcium come in can do a lot for a paramecium moving around. The potassium channels are necessary for the membrane to briefly become more negative to let the calcium channels act again. So there's a cycle between calcium and potassium. And we know even with single-celled paramecia, if they bump into a wall or into an object, they back up and change direction. Mm -hmm. And that's because the ion channels they have will uh, decrease the flow of calcium. So some cilia stop beating and other cilia start beating. Okay. And it can move them away. I see. So that is with a single cell. Right. When multicellular organisms arose, that is to say, when animals first arose, they started having difficulty with communication because if you have many cells, you need to transfer information a- around the organism. So there was a strong need for a nervous system to evolve. Mm -hmm. So one of the most important things that happened at the origin of animals is that neurons evolved, and these neurons evolved sodium channels. Well, why is sodium so important? For a few reasons. First of all, animal sodium channels evolved from a, a calcium channel. It changed its selectivity so that only sodium went in. Now, there are a number of things to consider. When calcium comes into cells, even our own cells, only a small amount of calcium comes in because it's so potent. It is so strong. It will act through other proteins that amplify its actions. Mm Neurons, any cell, goes to great lengths to keep the internal calcium levels very low. Mm -hmm. And the importance for that is that because calcium is doing jobs inside cells, for example, it triggers the contraction of muscle cells. If the calcium were high all the time, the muscle cells would be contracted. So it's very important that cells keep calcium low unless the calcium channels let them in for some job that they have to do. That makes sense. So that's a problem. If you have a nervous system and you're trying to keep the amount of calcium low, you need to find another ion that you can let into the cell in high amounts. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'll start disturbing the calcium homeostasis, Mm -hmm. that is, the regulation of calcium. Too much calcium is bad. It has to be kept low. The problem with the nervous system is for a signal to propagate over distance, 
what you need is a lot of ions going into a cell. Mm -hmm. Calcium would be bad because a lot of calcium would go in. It would interfere mm. with all the calcium-dependent processes. So one of the key innovations of the origin of neurons is that a calcium channel became permeable to sodium. Okay. Sodium is in high abundance in the ocean. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of it all around, and it can function as a charge carrier. That is, goes into the nervous system, and each ion has a positive charge, and it's, generally speaking, inert. It doesn't activate proteins. It doesn't activate intracellular processes. So now organisms could have a high on, uh, an ion in high concentration coming into the cell, uh, allowing rapid conduction of information, of action potentials, while leaving all the calcium-dependent processes intact. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part is why do we have so many potassium channels? Right. And there are a number of reasons for that. One, potassium channels are much older. Mm -hmm. uh, they first appeared in bacteria so that the amount of time over two and a half billion years of accumulation of new potassium channel genes occurred over a very long period of time. So even the earliest animals already were inheriting a variety of potassium channel genes. Mm -hmm. And then they increased in number in animals as well. Mm -hmm. So just simply by the fact that they're older, there are many, many more genes that had time to duplicate, that is to make more copies of themselves. But the other thing is different potassium channels have different behaviors. Mm -hmm. And these different behaviors allow neurons to do many different things. Some potassium channels cause neurons to fire one action potential, and then they stop. Mm -hmm. Others will allow them to fire what we would call trains of action potentials, mm -hmm. bursts of action potentials. And much of the behavior of cells, how they differ, is mainly due to potassium channels. If the sodium channel just makes an action potential, the potassium channels sculpt that and form the firing properties. Uh -huh. So just to give you one example, the heart makes an action potential that's about 200 milliseconds long. It has to be long, so the heart muscle has time to contract. Some of that is due to calcium channels. Some of that is due to a sodium channel. But potassium channels help shape the heart action potential to make it long. Other potassium channels in other cells make short action potentials or let some neurons fire bursts, others just one action potential. So potassium channels sculpt the activity of the brain the and, and give us the nervous system yes yeah. i like that <laughs> yeah. so there was a scientist named dr daniel walpert and he suggested that the only reason to develop a nervous system is to move i i, I would agree with walpert yeah that movement is important as well as sensing Movement is likely one of the reasons, and I say that based on some very interesting observations in the fossil record. So about animals, or let's say animals with nervous systems, are first well recognized about 550 million years ago during a period called the Cambrian Explosion, or during a period the Cambrian period, and in this period there was something called the Cambrian explosion. That is, many, many of the living kinds of animals that we see today could first be observed in the fossil record. And was this also the era where you had all the very weird animals pop up? Many yeah. of yeah. them were very weird. Yeah. Many of them are extinct, yeah. mm -hmm. but many Obviously, all of the animals from the Cambrian are extinct, but, <laughs> yeah. 
many uh, types of animals that were very weird went extinct, you know, very quickly. Some animals, like crustacea, are still around. Now, the individual species may be different, but the the attributes that make a crustacean a crustacean, number of legs and this and that, are still recognized today. So what's very interesting is before this Cambrian explosion, there aren't many fossils. So one of the questions is, is it really the case that there weren't so many species around, or is it the case that there were lots of animals, but they didn't have fossilizable parts. Because if you look and ask, what are the fossils that we see? There are mollusks, and we know that from their shells. There are many kinds of crustaceans. We know that from their exoskeletons, fossilized exoskeletons. You don't see too many jellyfish, which are far more ancient, and jellyfish exist today they don't fossilize well. Mm -hmm. So is it just a case that there were not so many animals or that there were kinds of animals, but they did not have fossilizable parts? I see. So that raises the question, why in the Cambrian period were there organisms making fossilizable parts? Why did mollusks make shells? Why? Mm -hmm. Did crustacea make exoskeletons? And one of the answers that people have proposed is that carnivory evolved around that time, that it's very possible that animals like jellyfish or some other kinds of animals that we, we have a few fossils of, but we don't even recognize them today. They don't look like anything we have today. The thought is they might have been grazing on algae. They might have been eating very simple things and then uh, evolved mechanisms to eat other animals, which are a much richer form of energy. And once you start eating other animals, those animals need protection. And that's maybe why they evolved hard body parts but those animals also had to get away. So having a nervous system allowed you to escape predators better. Mm -hmm. And having a nervous system, if you were a predator, maybe allowed you to sense your prey and to attack it. So there's some suggestion that neurons originated to help with movement, as Wolpert said, mm -hmm. and that the better movements became perhaps if animals were also starting to eat each other, let's say other species, other types, that then armor and better nervous systems evolved. So it's actually a little more complex, right? Because what makes me stumble upon this quote is always the paramecium also can move, but it lacks the nervous system. And so that's where I have this conflict in my head. But as you stated it right now, it's also about communicating and avoiding predators. Yes. Paramecium do move. I could show you a YouTube <laughs> of a, um, an amoeba. Mm -hmm. And this amoeba is coming along and there's a paramecium. And the amoeba senses it, puts out um, its uh, blobby cell <laughs> and surrounds it. And the paramecium is going crazy, trying to back up, trying to move. And gradually the amoeba encompasses it and eats it. Yeah. So actually carnivory is even older. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there are bacteria that eat other bacteria. So yeah, I, but once an animal becomes multicellular, yeah. it's, it's far more complicated. Yeah. That brings us to our next question, which is just for those listeners that have never heard this term before, because we certainly haven't, what is meant with ancestral gene content reconstruction? Well, the idea is 
let's say that we humans have, well, uh, it's true, we humans have nine different, really ten different sodium channel genes. Uh, well, first let, let me say one thing. So genomes are very dynamic, especially over evolutionary time. And this results because some genes duplicate, that is, two copies can be made, and sometimes a gene can be lost. So uh, I won't get into all the details, but just assume that genes, sometimes the whole genome can duplicate so that now there are two times as many genes as there were before. So with this number of genes increasing, or sometimes decreasing, one thing that you can do is to estimate the number of genes that occurred in early ancestors. So if I look at humans, or mammals, we have 10 sodium channel genes. If I look in reptiles, reptiles and birds have one less, nine sodium channel genes. When I look in frogs, they have, I forget the number, I've published a paper on this, but I think it's on the order of six or seven. When I look at fish, uh, well, let's skip fish for the moment. If I look at sharks, there are four sodium channel genes in their genomes. If I look at a kind of organism called tunicates, these are uh, chordates. That means they are related to vertebrates, but they don't have a spinal cord. Anyway, they have one. So if we compare living species and look at the evolutionary tree of the relatedness, we can see that there was an increase in the number of sodium channel genes from a, a simple chordate. And over the course of evolutionary time, there were increases in the number of genes. So we can start with the number of genes of a living species, or of a number of living species, and extrapolate back to the number of genes that there must have been in an ancestor. And to talk about gene content, what we did, and when I say we, I mean uh, Benjamin Liebeskind, who was a graduate student in my lab, did an analysis of many different genes, genes for different ion channels, genes for neurotransmitter receptors, and related molecules. So what he was getting at was in the very first neurons, can we extrapolate back to what the first set of genes might have been in an ancestral organism. And also, uh, if we look at different groups of animals, can we see that it's not just an increase, but in some cases there are decreases in, in genes. Um, can we follow different lineages of animals and then ask, in all of these different lineages, how have the numbers of different types of genes increased, and do we see a pattern? And the pattern that he saw was that certain kinds of receptors, like glutamate receptors, that are very important for excitability in the nervous system, increased in number in a couple of different groups of animals independently. He also saw potassium channels increase a number of genes in different organisms independently, different types of organisms. And so from this analysis, he tried to say, what genes are the most important in evolving a complex nervous system? Mm -hmm. And so that's how he uh, used this notion of gene content analysis. It's a very good explanation that makes yeah. sense to, to me. So the evolution of the voltage-gated sodium channel in the South American and African clades rapidly diverged 
Mm-hmm. And why do you think was that? So what were the pressures on that animals? So if a gene or a protein made by a gene is doing something and it's very, very constrained is the word, the technical word we would use. That is, if it's changed very much, it might hurt the function mm-hmm. of this protein. It may be the case that when this gene, or if this gene is now in a different kind of cell, it might be able to do something completely different. So what's interesting about fish, heliosts, or the bony fish as we call them, there was a whole genome duplication at the origin of bony fish. In other words, they suddenly got twice as many genes. That's the three R thing? Yes. Okay, yes. So uh, in general, we would say compared to land vertebrates like us, they should have two genes for everyone that we have. Now, the story's not that simple, but if we just go with that oversimplification, we can say that some genes may have two copies. So it turns out we have a gene in our muscles. It's a sodium channel. Uh, Mutations in that gene in humans cause muscle problems. Mm -hmm. We have other sodium channel genes in our hearts. Mutations in those genes cause heart problems. We have yet other ones in the brain. Mutations in those may cause epilepsy. Mm -hmm. So sodium channels may be found in different places. But the one in our muscle, we just have one sodium channel gene in our muscles. Just one. Just one. That's a little bit of a simplification, but we'll (laughs) go with that. (laughs) And when this gene duplicated, that is, two copies occurred at the origin of fish, most fish have both genes still expressing in the muscle. In other words, those two genes are turned on and the proteins that they make the sodium channels that they make are very similar to each other, and they both function in muscle. However, in the two different groups of weakly electric fish, as the electric organ evolved from muscle, one of those genes lost its expression from muscle. And the muscle is perfectly happy in those fish to have only one sodium channel gene, like our muscle. The other gene now gained expression, and this is something we're trying to understand now. What are the molecular signals that tells the gene to turn on in the muscle, to turn off in the muscle, and now to turn on in the novel environment of an electric organ? Mm -hmm. Um, So when that happens, now the sodium channel gene that's in the electric organ is freed, freed up, from having to do the job of making an action potential for the muscle, because muscles have been making action potentials for millions of years, Mm -hmm. and they have to do the certain job, and they can't change much. Mm -hmm. But now, if a a sodium channel is in the electric organ, and it's making a signal, and natural selection is working on that channel, so that maybe a a slight mutation will cause an action potential to be shorter or longer Mm -hmm. or or this or that, natural selection could select for that because now it has nothing to do with movement, whereas a mutation in the sodium channel in the muscle that affected the the channel would likely be eliminated because if if it caused a muscle mutation, that would be a problem. The animals would have trouble moving. So natural selection is keeping the sodium channels in the muscle to stay the way they are. Natural selection is having the opposite effect on the sodium channels in the electric organ as electric fish were evolving and different species came about and there were reasons for using the discharge. It's not for movement anymore. It's to sense objects to communicate and so natural selection was actually changing the properties 
of the ion channels, and therefore they were evolving at higher rates. So it's not so much a pressure, but more of, I, I like the word you used, it was free to mm -hmm. diverge. Yeah. That's a different perspective, usually these pressures, but never... Uh, yeah, I also imagined it like, okay, freedom. animals <laughs> have trouble surviving, and therefore evolution comes up with a new strategy, but mm -hmm. it's more than it's, that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's very cool. Um, to move to some general questions, a little bit away from the more specific research questions, we want to ask you, since we're here at the fish meeting in Goethe, where do you see the future of the weekly electric fish as a model organism, not just in genetics, but maybe in other fields as well? Mm -hmm. Well, there's always been a very strong tradition, and we see that well represented at this meeting, uh, of studying electric fish in terms of computational neuroscience mm -hmm. uh, because they make complex signals and interact socially with each other and respond very quickly to these signals, we can learn a lot about brain processes. Uh, a lot has been learned. I, I would say one of the first complete neural circuits that were understood in the vertebrate brain from sensory input to motor output occurred in the electric fish. So there's a rich tradition of that uh, kind of work. And there are still so many uh, unanswered questions as to how signals are processed. And uh, people doing computational work can often come up with algorithms to understand this processing and that may be applicable to any kind of brain because brains are in any animal have to process information. I think as the two neurophysiologists in the room, we are very happy with your answer. <laughs> <laughs> very pleased. <laughs> so um, we wanted to ask you, since you're a master in this from my point of view, how can we do science communication better? Uh, do you mean with the public? Everything, like writing styles and journals, um, the format, the medium with which we communicate, but also the way we communicate with not just the public, but each other. Ah. I think this is a very important question. When my graduate students write papers, um, I try and give them some advice in terms of how to structure a paper. Um, one of the things I always tell them is when you're writing a paper, use Anglo-Saxon words. It, <laughs> in other words, use the simplest possible words to communicate. Yeah. Don't use fancy words if you can avoid it. Yes. So yes, you need terms, you need technical terms, But in terms of reaching your audience, you need to make things understandable. And I always tell them, when you write a paper, you need to have what I call the pyramid structure. The introduction to a paper should be a pyramid on its point. In other words, you start with the most broad, most general points, What is the overall significance? Why should other scientists care about this? What are the big uh, contexts for this question? And then you get narrower and narrower until at the end of your introduction, you're saying, here's what, the particulars of what I'm studying and how I'm studying. And now, here's, I'm going to give you the results and tell you what I found. Then when you write a discussion, it's the opposite. The pyramid uh -huh. is going this way, and you start with the details, and you say, I just showed you this in my experiment, and now I'm dealing with whatever technical issues that I have to in the data, and now I'm broadening it out to what this means perhaps in my individual field, mm -hmm. and then I try and broaden it at the end and say this is the general importance of these results. So I see that as a way to, to write a paper. But more generally, I think it's very important to communicate with each other. And 
ideas, you can do an experiment and get a result, but if you don't publish it, no one else knows about it, and it has no impact. So it's so important to publish and make people, other scientists, at least initially, understand your results and why you did them. And if people write in very technical, very, in many cases, confusing prose, only those narrow experts or those experts in their narrow fields will understand why they did it. So our first audience is other scientists. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that means other scientists who are even generally educated, not necessarily experts in your field. And the best of all, I think, would be to reach general audiences. Mm, yes. Tell the public. Yeah. Uh, and there are many routes like this that you can <laughs> use to tell people why what you do is interesting. I, I sometimes tell people that, well, I should say my old postdoc advisor told me, well, you need to have different seminars. You need your roughly hour-long seminar that you give to experts you need your maybe a half-hour seminar that you can give at a meeting, and you need your elevator seminar that you can give when you're in an elevator with someone and they say, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> and you've got two minutes, maybe, to tell them. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice. Um, just to cap things off. Exactly. We also wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for young students who want to stay in science? What do you think is the most important? Well, I would say it has to be passion because if you don't really have passion, if you aren't driven every day, I wake up, I, as I'm showering, I'm thinking of experiments. <laughs> every minute when I look around the world, there are so many things that I see that yeah. are so amazing that I, I wish I could have 10 careers in different branches <laughs> of science. Yes. And if somebody doesn't have that passion, if somebody is doing maybe getting a degree because they don't really know what else to do, I would say, don't bother. Yeah. Don't do it. In, in fact, a professor at our university used to send people a letter if they asked if they could come and work with him. And he would say, the world does not love biologists. You won't make much money doing this. <laughs> If you know how to do something else, like be a plumber, you'll be in much better shape. <laughs> <laughs> and he suggests, if you can do this, go ahead and do it. But if you don't have a choice, and by that, I know what he means, yes. yeah. if you wake up and that's all you can think about yes. and you can't imagine anything else if you're obsessed yeah. and you don't have a choice because your brain won't let you think about anything else, <laughs> then, he said, we can talk about whether you're ready to be a scientist. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose because so often things can fail in science, you have to have that passion, right? Because you can work on an experiment for six months, seven months, and then you realize some little technical thing tripped you up and all your data is worthless. And if you don't have the passion there, I think you, you're not going to be happy. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's true. I knew a graduate student when I was in graduate school who wanted to study um, the social behavior of antelopes. Oh. And she went to Africa Uh, for the first time and she came back and I said how was your trip and she said it was terrible for days we couldn't find the animals and finally when we found them we had all kinds of problems because the battery in our jeep died and this happened and that happened and it was so difficult and I just said yeah I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's field work <laughs> what were you expecting <laughs> She got out of doing field work. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, I always tell people, you've got to expect failure. Yes. Because if you're not failing, you're not doing something totally new and innovative. Right. Yeah. And uh, 
when the day finally comes where you see something that no human being has ever seen before, yeah. it's so exciting. Yeah, and <laughs> makes it all worth it. Yes. I also often get the feeling the harder the question is and the more complicated, the more I will get amazed in the end when yeah. I tackle that question. Yes, down. even if the failure is higher. But you have just to push through, in my opinion, <laughs> and I think so. stay behind it. Yeah. So that just about wraps things up for us, I think. Thank yes. you once again so much for being here today and giving us so much great insight on not just your research, but biology in general. Yes, it was such a pleasure yeah, to talk thank to you. you.